Okay. So we have Robert Jensen on my podcast today, and I'm going to do a superficial introduction, and then you can always fill me in after. Um, but you are, you're retired, I believe, but you were a professor of journalism from the University of Texas in Austin. And you've written a ton of books, one book that we'll be talking about today. So you're an activist, you're a professor, um, books like The End of Patriarchy and Radical Feminism for Men, which I just read, and that was really good. And you have um, Pornography and the End of Masculinity. And this one's really good that I need to read, Freeing the First Amendment. So I suppose that's on prestige. So that's my superficial introduction to you. You can fill me in stuff that you've done, like what people need to know about you. Actually, I'm a very superficial person, so that's appropriate. To, uh, no, but you did hit the highlights. Um, I I was a working journalist in the newspaper industry in my 20s, went back to school, became a professor, spent my career at the University of Texas at Austin. And unlike a lot of folks in the scholarly world, as soon as I could get out of the scholarly uh, arena, I did. And most of the books, including the ones you mentioned, were written for a general audience. So. Uh, I was a generalist uh, rooted in radical feminism and a critique of male dominance uh, and have written about, um, you know, in some sense, all of the major problems that currently afflict the human community. Um, and I did retire about five years ago and am happily living in a rural area now, which is an interesting and very different perspective compared to the urban environment in Austin, Texas, where I lived. Okay. I, um, I re before I get into like, the book mm -hmm. that I think uh, this was actually really like, I I really enjoyed this book, but I, I um I like how you did say that you had to kind of get out of academia to sort of mm -hmm. flush out these ideas that you've had. Um, I studied political science and then I did my master's and I felt very suffocated. Um, there's generally a <laughs> yeah. a perspective that they have an idea that you can't knock because there's a lot of investment and money that goes into keeping yeah. certain ideas in place. So. I appreciate that kind of bravery and courage that a person takes when they move away from institutions to be a bit free. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I would agree. And, and, you know, everybody who's been in a university setting knows there are some brilliant people doing incredibly mm -hmm. important work. But you're speaking to the institutional reality, which can be so suffocating. And I agree completely. Yeah. I had I had the best of both worlds. I, I got tenure and, and a pretty much guarantee of lifetime employment at a major university with incredible resources. Um, yeah. It may seem silly, but what I miss most about it is the library. I can't go to the library anymore. I miss I don't the library know. a lot. I miss, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but the flip side is that kind of institutional inertia, the way that perspectives, theories, points of view become um, sort of calcified. And, yeah. and in feminism and women's studies, um, there, were, there were those same tendencies. So... I was eager to get outside of that and connect with a feminist movement more in the real world than in the academic world. Mm. Well, in my, in from my um, perspective, it was um, I w I'm a Marxist, and I I found it very hard to stick to kind of a genuine mm -hmm. Marxist analysis of events, sure. and it was always a postmodernist take with a little bit of language of Marx, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that became quite frustrating because it then just seemed like armchair Marxism, actually. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I mean by I wasn't able to I wasn't I didn't feel compatible yeah. in those departments. Yeah. A good friend of mine, uh, my mentor, as I was uh, getting into all of this, said he would always apply the sleep test. If he read 
material and it put him to sleep, sleep quickly. Uh, it was an indication there might not be much of value there. And he mm -hmm. said a lot of the, the left Marxist uh, literature of the 1970s when he was going through all this. And he said he always found radical feminism much more engaging. That excited him. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I kind of took that as a, a good guide. I tried to move toward material that helped me understand the world that was exciting. I always describe myself as an unaffiliated leftist rooted in radical feminism, uh, trying to avoid dogma, but also understanding that everybody uses frameworks. Yeah. Uh, there, there's kind of ideology in all of us. And, and the, the way I say it in a new book I'm working on is I think the, the goal is to recognize the role of ideology in all our lives without becoming an ideologue, someone who is yeah. so stuck in a framework and can't get out of it. And, um, I hope I've been able to do that, but uh, that's the goal. Well, you talk about that in the beginning of your book, which I really appreciated, where you quote your friend saying, sometimes it's almost like joining a gang. So you find mm -hmm. this theory and yeah. then you find the group. Yeah. You tend to then find other people and then you're so stuck in that. And then you're yeah. not, it's a dogma. And then you're not able to sort of reflect or move or find nuances. And it is in the feminist movement, um, it's quite, I think it's quite damaging to women. Yeah. It really blocks us off. Yeah, um, it's a problem in every movement I've ever been a every, part of. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the book I'm working on, which will be out next year, uh, the title is, or at least the working title, is Dead Dogma, which is a phrase yeah. from John Stuart Mill's famous book from 1859 on liberty. And he said, uh, even if, if an assertion is true, right, if it isn't tested, instead of living truth, it becomes dead dogma. And I think you're, you're exactly right. That can show up everywhere. And so how do we um, both stay committed to a political project mm -hmm. that requires, you know, a, a kind of loyalty? You know, political yeah. movements require people to stay, to stay strong and stay true. And yet at the same time, not let it again, I'll use the word calcify and become dead dogma. And I think if you know, I live in the U.S. and in the U.S. Uh, right now, there's a lot of dead dogma in the road everywhere, right, left, center, and so that's what I'm trying to think through these days: is how do you stay committed to principles that really do matter? Because human suffering and ecological degradation yeah. are the consequence of giving up principles, mm -hmm. yet not become so narrow that uh, you become politically ineffective and intellectually. Uh, inadequate, I would say. I found this dogma on the left and then I've been wavering. So for me, um, I personally, I was quite an activist uh, in my university years and then mm -hmm. maybe became an adult and had to work <laughs> for a bit. Um, but I, it's all coming back to me. And I, if there was a quote someone said, I can't remember her, I said politically homeless. Like I feel yeah. a bit lost on the left. I feel yeah. that there's a lot of dogma. I feel that once I have a little bit of a home, then something erupts. And then these women that were speaking about one thing have not accommodated yeah. another. And yeah. this is quite, I, and then what's worse is that in the last period, I think men have taken up women's questions more predominantly and much mm -hmm. more dangerous. And when I mean by men, like, uh, like men who support the status quo, capitalism yeah. and so on. And, it's yeah. I just I honestly I feel like I'm I feel like things haven't progressed. If one of the stuff I was fighting for in university, which was about, you know, twelve years ago. 
nothing has changed. I, mm. I, I don't think it got progressively worse. So yeah. I think, going I think through, yeah. Your, your sense of being politically homeless is very common. I hear that from a lot of people yeah. who, who want to think freely within a generally, let's call it left critical progressive uh, tradition. Uh, this has been the defining characteristic of my entire career. So I got involved in all of this and started to get politicized when I was 30 years old, went back to graduate school to prepare to be a professor. And my entry into radical thinking was the radical feminist critique of pornography. And I was just kind of a regular guy who, you know, had used pornography, never thought much about it, thought feminists were crazy women who couldn't get dates, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of idiotic thinking that's so common. Yeah. Uh, still, and I found the yeah. at the same time, I was learning about a left critique of capitalism and imperialism and mm -hmm. uh, a critique of white supremacy. I was rooted in this radical feminist critique of men's sexual abuse and objectification of women. And it seemed to me very compelling. And I was quite surprised that all my lefty friends didn't agree. And so okay. my, my initial work was realizing that what I thought as a principled critique of power, right, critiquing mm -hmm. the way men buy and sell objectified female bodies for sexual pleasure, which is the way I define mm -hmm. pornography, uh, the way that pornography is deeply misogynist and also incredibly racist. Yeah. These are things I thought the left critiqued, you know, media that's misogynist and racist usually is a, an object of critique by the left. But in the realm of the sexually explicit material, for some reason, the left kind of gave it a pass. Yeah. And so I was always in that kind of tension with my left comrades. Uh, and it's only I think you're right. It's only gotten uh, worse in the sense that that tension is deeper. The left abandonment of a principled approach to patriarchy, to institutionalize male dominance, um, has become weaker. And I, you know, I'm sorry for that. I keep trying to write and bring those things together. Um, you know, I don't think there's there's a problem with holding anti-capitalist views, which yeah. I do. Mm -hmm. Anti-imperialist views. As a citizen of the U.S., I believe that's morally compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, a critique of white supremacy and a critique of patriarchy that includes not only support for abortion rights, which I do, mm -hmm. not only a critique of rape, which I have, but a critique of prostitution and pornography, what I call the sexual exploitation industries. Now, there are great feminists doing great work on that. Um, I'll name a couple because I think people should read them. One is yeah. my friend Gail Dines, who is probably mm -hmm. the leading feminist critic of pornography in the U.S. today, uh, and Julie Bindle in the U.K., an incredible journalist who's written uh, a great book on the worldwide sex trafficking that's inherent in prostitution. Uh, well, these folks are doing good work on the ground, even if they're not part of the intellectual elites, you know, in Ivy League universities. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's a, a consistent feature of critical history, I think, which is intellectuals have a role and intellectuals in universities have a role. But the work has always been, I think, pushed forward by people on the ground. That's certainly the story of the anti-pornography movement, of which I'm still a part. Um, there are a few big name theorists and writers associated with it, and that's fine. But I've had an incredible privilege to meet the women who gave birth to that movement, you know, and, and did the work on the ground that was very hard. Uh, and they're incredible people, um, you know, uh, radical feminists, often lesbian feminists, uh, 
who were smart, determined. And I must say, as a quick footnote, some of the funniest people I've ever met. The, the, one, the one lie about feminism I never understood was that feminists have no sense of humor. And I got to tell you, <laughs> I've had the best belly laughs in feminist yeah. gatherings that I've had anywhere. So, uh, you know, that's well, a reminder. Um, well, I mean, I, I haven't met all the feminists, yeah. um, but I'm, in, I'm a comedian. So I think yes. the, the funniest people I know are a lot of women. And yeah. they always talk about women's issues. But on the topic of pornography, like, so you're much older and the feminists that you're talking about, not to be age discriminatory, but you are much, the feminists that you're talking about that led that movement. So we'd say they're from like the 70s, mm -hmm. like the anti-pornography. Right. I'm, I'm a millennial and this is, a, there's a huge clash here because you're talking about a period where there was such, there was this wave of questioning things. Yes. The feminism that I'm coming from, that I've had my entire life, that is so destructive, is this, the, the one that you talk about in the book is this liberal, yeah, liberal feminism mixed with postmodernism, which is choice feminism. So mm -hmm. it's just choices. Like, if I choose, I'm a feminist because I chose this. And, and with that comes the idea that pornography is actually liberating. Yeah. And prostitution, which will now label as sex work, which was, I think, that the craziest, like, um, manipulation i have ever mm. heard in, in mm. my years of studying um but this is interesting because there was never really a break for me while i was from from my preteens to university where there was actually voices like opposite, uh, opposite voices all i've ever yeah. got with girls around me was oh you don't watch porn i mean but everybody watches yeah. porn right so it's it, it's it's hard to actually retake the take these ideas that you're you're giving yeah but um do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's so hard. This is a, this period that I'm, the, the age group that yeah. I'm talking about, what we grew up with. No, I, absolutely. So I started this work in 1988, which was um, kind of in the heyday still of the feminist anti-pornography movement, where even in women's studies departments, you could have discussions about it, even if everybody didn't agree. And so in my career, I've seen this very compelling analysis of sexually explicit material become even more compelling. Uh, yeah. Probably the, you know, the founding mother of the movement is Andrea Dworkin, sadly now dead. And Andrea's work is brilliant for its time and even more brilliant when you realize that the, 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 the trends in pornography, the underlying reality of pornography that she was identifying has become even more intense. Yeah. You know, I, I often say, you know, Andrea would be, you know, turning in her grave if she actually knew how right she was. Yeah. Right. Now, you would think as an analysis becomes more compelling, its predictive capacity has become validated, you would think people would move toward it. But as you're pointing out, just the opposite has happened. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a student uh, who was a, a women's studies minor, and she was a critic of pornography and trying to do work on that. And she was taking her senior thesis course where they all did individual projects. and she was totally isolated. The other students thought yeah. a critique of pornography was silly. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they giggled at her when she talked about it. Uh, and so she went, it's a long story, but I'll condense it. She went to talk to the professor and the professor essentially waved away the problem. Right? So it's not only young people, but uh, I think a lot of older feminists have essentially given in to this because it's become the kind of flavor of the month. The, the pro-prostitution, pro-pornography, sex work ideology has really taken over. 
But if you actually look at the reality on the ground, if you look at, let's say, the content of pornography, right. it's much more deeply misogynist, much more mm -hmm. racist than it's ever been. And how can a movement that claims to be critical of misogyny and racism not critique the media genre that, that makes that real in the world? Uh, you know, I, I think these are struggles that uh, I guess when I started, I thought would be over by now. But in fact, it's become, as you say, more difficult to make a principled structural critique of the way men mm -hmm. buy and sell objectified female bodies. I say that phrase over and over again to, yeah. to really to really press home that pornography is not just sex on film. It's not just clean, good old American fun. It's the buying and selling of objectified female bodies primarily for male pleasure. And it's hard to square that with any interpretation of feminism. What's interesting is when you said women's studies in the early beginning, when I first started my um, bachelor's, I took my first course in women's studies and then it disappeared and turned into gender studies or women's mm -hmm. studies was the yes. department that we would talk about a lot of these issues, I felt, yeah. in women's literature. Um, I think it was a bit Eurocentric, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't have a critique of that, but I was more interested in women's literature and so, and then it turned into gender studies. And this entire thing about prostitution and pornography, it's very it's very, it's very rooted in the individual, that the individual has a chance to change themselves any yes. way they like, and we need to support that, negating yeah. the structural oppressions that you write yeah. about in your book. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. Let, let me, I want to make one point uh, very clear. Uh, when I critique this, I'm not critiquing individual women. I'm not telling women no, I know, yeah, that, yeah. you know, I'm a guy. And my, my role in all of this is to present to, to other men a critique ask them to be accountable. And I've always focused on yeah. that. But I do think the points you're making, I hear from women all the time. And there is a kind of odd disconnect. So let's take a left analysis of capitalism right? mm -hmm. from people who are anti-capitalist. Again, I consider myself one. Well, there are lots of, in the US, we call them rags to riches stories, where a worker who started with nothing builds a business and becomes a millionaire. All right. Those people tend to be very pro-capitalist, not surprising. Yeah. Right? And they tell a story of how capitalism is a fair and just system that allows everybody to prosper according to their abilities and willingness to work hard. All right. Well, I, I think those stories are real. People do have rags to riches stories, but they don't undermine a critique of capitalism, which leaves large portions of the world immiserated and always will. Okay. Yeah. Well, why would that same principle not apply to a critique of pornography and prostitution, again, what I call the sexual exploitation industries. I have no doubt there are women who feel porn is liberating. I've talked to some of them. I have no doubt there are women in the pornography industry who are happy for the career they've had. Yeah, I, I've heard them say that. But that doesn't, those, those don't undermine the realities of what happens to most women in the industry. It doesn't undermine the reality of how most men use pornography. It doesn't undermine a critique of the deeply sexist and racist content of pornography. Uh, and it doesn't undermine a critique of who's making most of the money in the pornography industry, which isn't women who perform on yeah. screen. It's the men who control the distribution of it. So all of those are what we would call, you know, structural or institutional critiques, which is a hallmark of left thinking. We don't just focus on individuals. We look at how systems work. But again, for some reason, the left and now even significant components of the feminist left ignore that kind of structural analysis 
in favor, and I think you use the right term, choice feminism, you know, the liberation of the individual. Well, the left dream was never the, you know, liberation of the individual. It was the liberation mm. of human communities from systems that inherently cause suffering. And I can't think of a system that more inherently causes suffering than pornography and prostitution. Um, I have another point, but I'll say this point. Mm. Like, how do you, when you were all like through this, I guess all this activism and writing, how would these conversations feel like with other women? Because I'll tell you what it feels like for me. Example, recently we're friends and I can be very opinionated randomly. So we were eating fish and chips and then I just said, yeah, I'm anti-porn. And then one of them kind of reacted and um, uh, anti-sex, anti-prostitution. And uh, she, she reacted very sharply and she said, well, you don't know well, I have a friend, a man who's in sex work. And I said, prostitution, you mean? And it became very tense. And so my point that I'm trying to say is like, I find that very interesting that women get in very tense arguments. And I think that because we can't handle that difference, for some reason, we allow men to come in and then, and I'm not saying you, but other men in general, Mm -hmm. who'll be like, well, she chose it. That that was her choice. And what's going on here that I can't say, prostitution is a huge like you know uh-huh. women will say feminist pornography yeah. what the hell does that have to do with anything that's a fringe movement we're yeah. talking about billion dollar corporations who yeah. are manufacturing these racial and sexist stereotypes yeah. that you're talking about yeah. and it's yeah. just hard to have these conversations so i just yeah. wonder how you've had them well let me tell you what you should think about this yeah. no, i'm kidding of course <laughs> and i i can't say that enough i don't tell women what to think um my focus has been on men. So let's go back to this question of choice. I've yeah. had men say to me, well, those women whose movies I'm buying or, you know, now yeah. clips on the Internet that I'm watching, they chose this. And I make a point that I learned from a woman in feminism who was critiquing prostitution. Right? I, I have very few original ideas in this matter. And mm. that's appropriate because the, the work has been done by women to, to outline this critique. And I just follow along. And I've made a an argument that I first heard from a woman in in a feminist critique of prostitution. And she said, you think you know that these women are choosing it, but you don't know who they are. You have no idea of the conditions under which that particular movie was made. How can you know? And even if you did know, let's say you knew a woman in a pornographic film, all you know is what she told you. And often that's what men want to hear. And the industry then keeps yeah. men buying. Yeah. So there's when when any man says that he knows a woman has made a free choice, the answer is no, you don't. You don't. There's no way you could know, and therefore you have to think twice before you glibly assert that your behavior is justified by the choices of women. And let me tell you one more story that I think you'll find interesting. As I said, I don't tell women what to think, but when when women, especially female students, came to me and wanted to discuss this, I would. And one young woman, uh, she said, you know, that critique of pornography, that's for older people like you and your cohort, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. She said, we young people don't worry about it. And I said, really? And I said, so she was heterosexual. And I said, let me give you a hypothetical. There are two men uh, that are interested in dating you. Right? And let's say by the criteria you find important, you know, funny, intelligent, good looking, whatever it is that you value in a potential date. I said, imagine that they're roughly equivalent. You've got these two guys both interested in you and they're essentially the same. I said, 
what if the only difference you knew was that one regularly masturbated to pornography and one didn't? Who would you want to go out with? And she said, well, the guy who didn't use porn. Yeah. And I said, but wait, you just told me porn is no big deal. Everybody uses it. It doesn't matter. And I said, why would your gut reaction be that you'd rather be with a man who doesn't use it? And I wasn't telling her what to think. I was saying, listen, ask critical questions about the ideology you've been presented yeah. and trust your gut. And, you know, it's funny. I, whenever I talk about these things, I never know what's going to hit me emotionally. Because, yeah. you know, we're talking intellectually and, and, and analytically, but there's real deep pain and emotion underneath this. And I just felt that for a second. The number of women I've talked to who, who glibly make a pro-porn argument, but then once you get below the surface, there's all this pain that's yeah. associated with male dominance in sexual relationships. And I don't just mean rape, although the pain of rape, of course, is incredible. I mean, just women who put up with uh, unacceptable heterosexual relationships with men because they, they've just assumed there's nothing else possible. And that's real pain. And it, once you get past the surface on this issue, that's often what comes out. And what you're, I think, talking about is how hard it is to get to that level where people talk honestly, because yeah. the, the glib ideology and the, the mantra of sex work keeps people from getting in touch with their own experience, which is often really difficult. And I understand why it's so difficult. I feel it myself. Well, you say in, in the book, like, I'm just paraphrasing, but you're like, you have to look at, you have to go towards the thing that you're afraid of yeah. and look it in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll get into why, why, as you as a man is talking about this, but there are countless times that I've been reading feminist literature that I want to close it and be like, I wish I didn't read that yeah, yeah. because you can't undo it. When you say, mm -hmm. when you talk about phrases that a guy will say, like, did you hit that? Or, yeah. you know, um, other phrases that are very misogynistic and sexist. I'm in the comedy industry. It's like that all yeah. the time. I remember reading a feminist, uh, her book. And she said, she said this thing and it hit me so hard. She's like, you just pray that the guy that you're sitting across at the breakfast table isn't addicted to porn. You just pray yeah. that yeah. you never find that porn list because it would yeah. just completely look at him. You'd look at yeah. him in a different way. And I think you're right that when I have, especially when I have hard conversations with my female friends, I think there's something yeah. else there, something yeah. else that they, it's like a way to regain control, but somehow mm -hmm. we're not back in control. Yeah. We regain control by saying, no, 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 I chose to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Negating what the structure is there. I had a young woman tell me that she didn't like porn. And I and I said it, in the course of the conversation, the question was, do you date men who use porn? And she said, yes, because if I didn't, I wouldn't date anyone. <laughs> That's true. And, and there it's was that sad. sense, that yeah. sense of resignation that, listen, the world is what it is. I can't change it. I talked to a young man once in in junior high, middle school, mm -hmm. who said that he didn't use porn and none of his friends would believe him. And they yeah. just said, hey, dude, don't be ashamed of it. We all do it. And he didn't. And he said, I don't use it. I don't like it. That's the world we live in. And and certainly one can understand if something seems inevitable, you learn to live with it. Uh, you know, we all know we're going to die someday and we learn to live with it. Uh, but the the idea that you can't change human relationships 
that what becomes normalized, that is the use of this very racist and sexist pornography is just inevitable. I think we have to hold on to the idea that that can change. Uh, I hope you know. so, because yeah. I was having a discussion with my partner and he felt a bit demoralized about some other societal mm. issue. And then I, then it came to me as a wave. I'm like, I don't think, I think that we could overcome mm. so many things in our lifetime, but for some reason, I don't think that we'll overcome women's oppression for the, for the basic fact yeah. of pornography and prostitution being dressed up as sex work. Yeah. Let me ask you this question though. Like, so there is actually a movement from the men's, the men's group mm -hmm. activists we're talking about. And so the leaders would be like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate, but yeah. certain sophisticated misogynistic yeah. philosophers yeah. who are also anti-porn. Yes. Right? So then where would, how would you explain that difference yeah. between them and you from a left wing? Perspective? Yeah. So Jordan Peterson, of course, the famous Canadian um, yeah. psychologist, philosopher, call him what you like. Uh, like some men on the right, he does critique pornography saying, essentially, it saps the strength of men, right? mm -hmm. that men should be focused on having real world relationships where they're the man, you know, and, and we mm -hmm. then can live out traditional gender roles. Uh, and so pornography is an impediment to that. Well, of course, I agree that pornography is emotionally detrimental to men. Right? I've talked to many, many young men, uh, especially, who can talk honestly and openly about how pornography becomes like a loop in their head. I've had young men say, I can't have sex in the real world without thinking about pornography. There are men who have experienced what we now call um, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, who become sexually non-functional because of their habitual use of pornography. Okay. There's a lot All of those, studies that show that, yeah. Right. And th those are bad things for men. But of course, the critique of pornography that comes from a feminist perspective isn't worried only about men's emotional well-being. It's a part mm -hmm. of it. It's about the conditions under which pornography is made, what happens to women in the industry. And it's about the way in which that habitual, often addictive-like use of pornography can lead men to sexual behaviors that are dangerous for women, yeah. Yeah. right? And so those are the things we care about. And the overall question, of course, is what does flooding a society with openly misogynist and racist pornography do to the general understanding of what sex is and what's acceptable, right? There's a mm -hmm. cultural question there. So the, the argument that pornography is bad because it's emotionally debilitating to men is only the beginning. And if you stop there, then you're likely to just be replicating male dominance and, you know, yeah. wanting men to get back to where they have real women in private and they control their wives and they control mm -hmm. their girlfriends. So Jordan Peterson has, you know, about 5% of the critique correct, mm -hmm. but uh, misses the boat on everything. And this is a real struggle when I talk to men who are really suffering from that experience of using pornography to the point where they're sexually non-functional. I don't want to trivialize that. That's a that's mm -hmm. a psychologically very difficult place to be. But in helping what I'm trying to do is help them move from their own individual self-interest to thinking about the larger question. And you know, uh, it's a it's an old cliche, but I think it's really important. Uh somebody once said, "I never met a motive that wasn't mixed." Right. So we okay. say people have mixed motives for doing things. Yeah. Well, I have I have a mixed motive for being a feminist mm -hmm. and being allied with a feminist movement. One is, of course, I think it's the right thing to do. There's what I always call the argument from justice. 
Mm -hmm. patriarchy is inconsistent with my sense of what a just society would be, Mm -hmm. right? But there's also an argument from self-interest. And I can speak, you know, personally about this. I first encountered radical feminism, especially the critique of pornography, 35 years ago, more than that now, right? And my life got better when I engaged feminism because I was no longer trying to be a man in traditional sense. I was never very good at being a man, you know, and meeting Mm -hmm. those masculinity norms. At first, I thought it was just because I was a weird kid. You know, I was short, Mm -hmm. skinny, effeminate. I didn't play sports. I, you know, I was, I was the definitive non-masculine boy. And I thought it was just a problem I had. And then I started to realize almost every man I've ever spoken to, including, you know, the high school quarterback and the, the ultimate macho man, they are all terribly distressed over not being man enough, that masculinity imposes on men this really crazy ideal that we can never meet. And we're often then engaged in not only behaviors destructive to women, but self-destructive behaviors. All right. So I'm a I'm allied with a feminist movement and take radical feminists seriously, both because it's the right thing to do and because mm-hmm. it's in my own interest to do it. I, I'm not saying I'm, you know, a model of psychological health these days. I'm, you know, as quirky and odd as the next person, I suppose. But and, and I'm not saying it hasn't been painful coming to terms with some of this, right? Having to face the way you were socialized as a man and what kind of attitudes and behaviors it led mm-hmm. you to. Facing that is not easy, but it, it also hasn't been easy facing the fact I was socialized to be a white person. And I have a whole lot of, you know, racist ideas in the back of my head that, you know, courtesy of my father and the culture, all of those things are painful. And the question is, do you land in a better place? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't trade, you know, any, there's, there's nothing you could offer me that if you said you have to go back to being that guy you were, you know, when you were 25 years old, before mm-hmm. you had thought about feminism or thought about a critique of white supremacy, as difficult as it is psychologically, as much as it puts me at odds with the culture, yeah. right? Um, I've lost friends uh, over these kinds of discussions. Um, I would never go back because there's a, a deeper and richer connection, not only to women, but to other men. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another thing that's in my self-interest. I have male friends I talk to in ways I could have never when I was 25 years old. The, the, the benefits to me <laughs> are important, but they're only half the story. The other half, of course, is trying to create a better world, especially a world in which women don't live with the kind of fear that is essentially a daily reality for most women. Uh, when so you, mix, mixed yeah. motives are fine. <laughs> they are fine. Um, when you talk about radical feminism, uh, you can correct me, on, but you're talking about to overcome, to completely tear down the patriarchy. So any yeah. So you're engaging in movements that are challenging that directly yeah. and not engaging yeah. in a liberal form of just like within yeah. the system yeah. and not engaging in a postmodern modernist form. So post based on postmodernist theory. So that's very idealistic philosophy from the seventies onwards. Mm-hmm. It's a def- different discussion, but like what you've said very well in your book is um, language based or changing the language. Yeah. This is yeah. very hugely the idealism the the whole um, sphere of idealism, but um, yeah, yeah and that's I, what you're if, talking about, radical feminism. Right, and and that's mm-hmm. a term that a lot of people have no context for. 
So radical feminism, by that we don't mean crazy, of course. Yeah. Uh, we mean feminism that takes seriously that men's dominance over women is rooted in control of women's reproductive power yeah. and control of women's sexuality. And of course, the greatest challenge to breaking that uh, control over reproduction comes from the right, the the right wing's commitment to you know undermining women's freedom, uh, reproductive control. The main challenge to the the men's control of sexuality comes from the left right now yeah. in their support of prostitution and pornography. And so you said something very important a, a while ago where you said. It's hard to imagine overcoming patriarchy. And I think there's a way in which I think it's important to, to tell, to say that, to tell the truth. We have to remember that patriarchy goes back five, 6,000 years. This is not a new <laughs> development. You know, capitalism is, depending on how you date it, 250, 300, 400 years old the most. Modern white supremacy, you know, the idea that those of us with roots in Europe are better than everybody else, that's only 500 years old. Right? Mm -hmm. With patriarchy, we're talking about a system that's been in place for thousands of years and, of course, is so intricately woven into the fabric of everyday life. You know, sexuality and reproduction are part of everyday life in a way that's quite unique in some ways. And, and I think that means we shouldn't be glib about, you know, I talk about overthrowing the patriarchy some days, um, but nobody thinks, you know, that's a simple question where you just get out in the street and you have these nine policy demands and yeah. then you get governments to change and then everything's fine. We're talking really about restructuring the way we think about each other and about ourselves. Yeah. And that's no small task, of course, but it's incredibly heartening to hear you speak uh, as someone mm -hmm. who is considerably younger, probably, I don't even want to guess, I'm 65 and you're a lot <laughs> younger than I am, uh, to know that that women in in your cohort have not given up is I find very heartening. So this has been a really positive conversation for me just to hear your your voice. So thank you for that. And just to touch on the history, like you wrote it in your book and I, I always found like the early like human history, the early beginning very fascinating mm -hmm. when it came to women and men. So this hunter gatherer mm -hmm. society where it was egalitarian. Yeah. And it's you know, you, you know how many arguments I got in university from anthropologists or those studying, which would come with counter theories like, no, men raped women from the very beginning. It's mm -hmm. like, we wouldn't have survived if yeah. that violence was there. Yeah. There's just no way we would have survived the external forces yeah. of wilderness and danger. But yeah. that shows you where we were once. Yes. Where, where you say correctly, our gender roles were actually very much defined by, the by our biology mm -hmm. and what we did. Mm. Um, you know, you, yeah. if I can just make one point piggybacking on yours, because I think it's incredibly important. There is this idea that men, have, men are brutes, men have always been rapists, all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And you make an important point that the evolutionary psychology argument that rape is kind of inevitable mm -hmm. really makes no sense whatsoever. Human beings evolved as, as gatherers and hunters in band yeah. level societies that were probably on average, you know, in the range of 20 to 50. Can you imagine a, a society of 20 to 50 people where men are going around raping the women all the time? I mean, yeah. it just doesn't, the whole thing falls apart the minute you apply, you know, a kind of high school level analysis to it. Yeah. Yet it shows you the strength of patriarchy that those, that desire to say, this isn't our system. This isn't the way we're choosing. This mm -hmm. is something inevitable. And men always revert to that when they're trying to explain 
why pornography can't be changed. Well, it's inevitable. Men are just more, you know, visual. That's another one. By the way, mm -hmm. in case you don't know it, as a woman, you're not visually attracted to anyone. That's only a male thing, you know. Thing. And that's why men use porn more than women. I mean, there's all these sort of old canards and stereotypes and and they they're no more persuasive today than ever. Mm -hmm. But it's funny how they keep recycling often with these, you know, pseudo intellectual uh, theories behind them. And so I, I apologize for going off on that. But that yeah. argument about rape has always really annoyed me more than anything. Um, yeah, we did say we were going to cut off at 40. But I do, I, mm -hmm. I do want to ask yeah. one last um, yeah. question. Maybe we're maybe we're bringing back an honest type of feminism again, where women are placed back in the center. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about social and economic rights now. And how women yeah. are being disadvantaged from men, from structures, and from patriarchy. But given the recent issue with Palestine and Israel, I've found that the women that I've turned to on this question that have been playing a vital role have dismissed completely the women on the other side, particularly in in Palestine. And it makes me question: Are we still in this? Are we still having this like this this debate in feminism where maybe white women just care about white issues and then? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel personally, yeah. it is very conflicting for me because I yeah. think we need to overcome this. Like, yeah. you're anti-imperialist and so am I. Yeah. There has to be. So when we talk about something as amorphous as feminism or even right. radical feminism, of course, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of people, women, yeah. uh, where there will be disagreements. And that's inevitable. Uh, I, all I can say is that the, the women I'm hang out with in my radical feminist circles, um, share a critique of this institutionalized power across the board. Mm -hmm. um, I have, a, for instance, a friend who's Jewish and anti-occupation. Mm -hmm. And in the, the recent war in Gaza, uh, really distressed trying to find a way to continue to articulate that anti-occupation politics while taking seriously the suffering in, in Israel. Yeah. I think we're all trying to do that. Exactly. Um, yeah. How do you do that in a way that's empathetic and human to, to everyone mm -hmm. while still realizing that the structural realities in Gaza and the West Bank are morally unacceptable and Israel isn't, in fact, an occupying army? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these these issues come up all the time, not only around hot button issues like, you know, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict, but pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think the sad part, and this is the focus of my next book, is how people have, instead of opening up to the complexity, have too often dug in because simple arguments are reassuring. And I agree. Yep. I'm sure I've given into, you know, something where A is true, B is false. You're either on or off my team. Those are, are ways we all deal with complexity. Mm -hmm. And complexity is not just an intellectual challenge. It's a human challenge. Mm -hmm. because none of us are are thinking machines. We are also feeling machines. Yeah. In fact, we're not machines at all, of course. And the integration of our rational and our emotional lives is very hard. So I agree that I have heard feminist comrades say things I disagree with. Yeah. I've, I've heard white feminists say things that I believe to be racist. Uh, I try to challenge them in, in those moments. Uh, and, you know, human beings, we're really a messed up species. And those 
those flaws that we have, you know, the way we fail mm-hmm. are not unique to any particular ideology or political group. So um, without sounding like, well, let's be nice to everybody, because there's a lot of people I don't want to be nice to. Yeah. Pe- people I think are <laughs> are actively promoting yeah. uh, not only destructive agendas, but agendas that sometimes I think deserve the term evil, not a yeah. not a term I use very often. But yes, we all have to hold each other accountable and including in our own movements. And the new book I'm working on is less about how to critique the other side. That's easy. I mean, yeah. I can tell you why right-wing misogynists are bad people. Yeah. You know, if you want me to critique Andrew Tate, the right-wing misogynist, well, that's pretty easy. That's easy, I, yeah. It's the hard conversations with other men on the left that I, I'm really yeah. targeting in this. And I think that's our, our fate right now. And, and collectively, we're not doing a very good job of it. No, but um, I think like just to, just wrapping this up, it's like I think humans are used to very categorical thinking. Yeah. That's our evolutionary yeah. process. Yeah. And you write about this in your book, which I really appreciate. I don't know which feminist you quote. I forgot her name. But when it comes to theory, and going back to this gang analogy, we're like stuck. Like it has to be this. Yeah. And then when yeah. something else happens, we're not we're not we don't have the tools to sort of disengage and take everything. Yeah. And you know there are feminists that I'm a bit dis- disappointed with given the recent events mm-hmm. with Gaza. And I, of course, feel for the women on both sides, but it's disproportionate on one side. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to throw these feminists out because of the work that they've done. It's so valuable. I think yeah. so valuable to the woman's cause that what I would prefer to say and do is build on that and then yeah. have something more nuanced and wider. And this is why I'm totally against canceling women, even if I might not like the things that they say. Yeah. I think cancellation is like a tool of misogyny, like something a man would say, like, shut up and sit down. And I've heard women yeah. say that to other women. Like, it's just so yeah. I guess new world events that are so tragic are going to have to reforce us to rethink things again. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms and, of women's and, liberation. Yeah. And I would say that we're only seeing the beginnings of it. So yeah. not to minimize the suffering of the world today, but but take this this the war in the civil war in Syria and the migration it it caused. That's trivial compared to what's coming when climate migration becomes the defining characteristic of the world. Yeah. Then you're gonna see not just you know a few thousand or a few hundred thousand people leaving an area. We're gonna see millions of people moving from areas that are no longer habitable. And how are we gonna deal with that? You know, what is Western morality you know, going to yeah. look like when people on that scale start moving and resources in one area are available but restricted? I mean, all of these things are coming and we need to get better, as you said, at engaging not only with our enemies, but with our allies and not writing people off based on disagreements. Um, I am not optimistic about the future. Um, I try to be realistic about what I believe the forces at work in the world are, both socially and ecologically. And uh, it's, it's, I think, important for all of us to dig in uh, and stay open, dig in on principles that we will not negotiate. Mm -hmm. Every human, every human being is born into this world with the same claim to dignity as every other human being, no matter what. That is a, a non-negotiable principle. Yeah. Right? But we we need to be better at understanding how to live those principles because no one has a 
no one has the corner on the market of how to live appropriately. So, yeah. What's the last book? What, sorry, what's your book that you're writing? What's it called? Do you want to plug that in? Well, the the working title is Dead Dogma: mm-hmm. uh, Thinking Freely, Speaking Responsibly, Living Authentically, and it tries to tie together not only this issue of freedom of speech, which people are talking about so much in a what's called a cancel culture. But also speaking starts with thinking and being able to think freely, to to understand what it means to truly engage intellectually. And then how we live out these, you know, principles we claim to to hold and speak about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, the trans issue, which I've gotten uh, canceled over, uh, I, I reflect on some of my earlier anti-imperialist work and how I got canceled after 9-11 for challenging yeah. American power. And so I try to to, to look at my own life um, honestly and keep pushing myself to be clearer in the way I think, more responsible in the way I think, uh, speak, and then to actually live everything in, a, in an authentic way. So it should be out about June next year, I hope. Well, hopefully then I can interview you about the interview you about the book yeah. because um i do find that very interesting free speech yeah. cancel culture i think free speech is a huge tool for women's liberation yeah. um but it's interesting because the university a couple of university studies came out a few years ago saying women are more in favor of censorship mm. more in favor of um debate more in favor of closing down debates that they think are harming and mm-hmm. that allows men to take up free speech for some reason yeah. and the right wing as their sort of tool and yeah. Perhaps we can talk about that. Would love term. to. Yeah, but that's Great. very interesting. But thank you yeah. so much. This has been, yeah, that was like almost 15 minutes. That went by very fast. Uh, no, thank <laughs> you very much. And um, the last trip I was supposed to take in, until COVID shut it down was to Europe to go to Germany. There was a German edition of my book that came out. And then I was going to go to Sweden where I have a lot nice. of contacts in the feminist movement. And so I was really looking forward to going to Sweden and that trip got canceled and I will never get back there. So, you know, I, <laughs> well, I don't, hopefully. I don't, tra- I don't travel anymore. So, uh, I, I missed my last chance to see all the really incredible women I met in various endeavors in Sweden. So I'm jealous that you get to be there. So it's uh, I'm getting introduced to the feminist movement here. I, yeah. um, I, my time is mostly taken up by comedy and then this yeah, is like a project I that i have on the side so i just yeah. don't die in, yeah. intellectually <laughs> yeah. so there is if yeah. you send me an email i'll send you the i have a couple of contacts left in the national women's group okay in Sweden, yeah. and and i can't remember what they're called uh, but one of them in particular they have i think very similar politics to you and they're really yeah. wonderful women and i'll send you a contact and if they're in in stockholm uh, but they do an annual conference around yeah. the country. And I think I just saw an email that suggests one is coming up. And my first thought was you should perform at their next annual conference. I would uh, love to. I have a lot of great yeah. feminists. There, actually. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, Send me an also, email to remind me. I will. Me. I do Good. want to actually interview a Swedish feminist and get yeah. a history of Swedish feminism. Yeah. And if you're, I assume you're doing everything in English and they're yeah. all very fluent in English, of yeah. course, as everyone is in Sweden. Uh, really fun. Let me know when this is posted and I'll do social media stuff with it. Yes. Great. Awesome. Okay. Have a good Take night. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.